Uh, Scott here, uh, a marijuana addict, subject to change without notice. And one thing I'm very certain of is I didn't get here because I was having too much fun. <laughs> That's for sure. And uh, um, it's so nice to notice that no one's messing with me right now. And so very, very nice to notice that everything I need is right in front of me right here right now. If I insist on the thing that isn't here, I miss the love in front of me. And I'm looking at the uh, Truches Peaks with still a little snow on there, and they're saying hi to you right now. And I just was very touched earlier today uh, when I heard some people uh, saying some things after the meeting, after the uh, noon meeting, Easter time. Very touching to me. I had a nice slow cry. I feel your love. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, you know, I was, uh, I found out uh, 22 years ago that I was conceived in a hotel room in Abilene, Texas. I was uh, born and raised in the Chicago area in the suburbs. I uh, was adopted into a family right from the get-go that had uh, two uh, older sister and a younger sister that were adopted, and my older brother wasn't adopted. And, you know, you know, th these days when I meet a family and they all act alike, it just blows me away. It's like, what are they all on the same medication, or are they just—it's just—it's just the gen genetics, you know. Uh, but uh, I don't know what my childhood was like. You know, if it was good or bad. You know, there was some pain. There was some, uh, you know, probably some dysfunction. I heard a guy once say in a meeting that uh, he put the fun in the dysfunction in his family. I would say I put the dis in the dysfunction in my family. And uh, and sure, there was some, you know, behavior by others and, you know, not just family members, but others that were, was se seemingly less than excellent. Uh, I'm reflecting back when um, one time a babysitter uh, was uh, probably doing the best she could to deal with her pain. Who knows what she was doing. And uh, But what I remember is, it shook me up so much that uh, I hid in the bushes all day instead of going to school, and I waited till the kids came home from school, and then I, uh, um, uh, you know, went went back in the house. You know, if I could do it over, not that anything could ever be any different in my life, I might have screamed. Um, you know, sometimes I, uh, I I feel that it could be divinely appropriate to shout a big no or a scream in an attempt to take care of oneself. But uh, um, anyway, with my childhood, uh, one of the things I thought was interesting, uh, kind of like how experiences happen and thoughts appear. Sometimes these thoughts appear to keep from feeling a feeling. And uh, I remember, I think it was around the fifth grade, uh, the experience was I opened the door and saw more kids than usual on recess before I went out to recess. And I paused. And I felt fear because there was more kids than usual. And the story that appeared that I fully believed in for decades until I came into recovery was that all those kids know their purpose in life. I'm the only one that's clueless. And part of their purpose is to watch me mess up. And, uh, you know, I believed that. And then when I, you know, creeped into these rooms, I found out other people's, you know, perceptions were kind of similar to mine. You know, it's like I... Uh, I believe my thoughts to be true, and that thought was basically saying my pain is special. 
other people are swimming through lives based on you know the way their hair looked, the way you know their skin looked, the way their you know the way their clothes fit, and the way I felt with my fear and my self pity and my doubt and my dishonesty and I my insides didn't feel so good. So, but I was that's not a fair comparison. That's like comparing apples to oranges. I was matching my insides with other people's outsides. I learned later. And somewhere around the sixth grade, I got this idea, when I get older, I want to start smoking pot. I didn't know anyone that smoked pot. But uh, that was, that was you know, that was appealing to me. And the story that was appearing in my mind was basically, I'll smoke pot, but, I, you know, when I get older, I want to smoke pot, but I won't use other drugs. And no one in my family smoked or anything. But, uh, you know, I was involved, you know, in sports as a little kid. I was good at baseball and uh um, you know, I, I'm open to the possibility that pot ruined a possible, you know, some minor league career in baseball, maybe. Um, it, it ruined a lot of things. But, uh, uh, you know, I remember being in seventh grade and uh, <clears throat> this girl I was seeing, she, you know, wanted me to kiss her. So I kissed her and she left the room. And I remember a couple of weeks later, she said uh, to the guy that she ended up marrying <laughs> decade, you know, many years later, uh, she said to him, I didn't mean to ruin his life. I just didn't want to see him anymore. <laughs> and, you know, I was, I was crushed. I was devastated. And, um, so, uh, you know, probably not much different than, you know, other people on the planet. I really sense that, you know, if I really listen to others, I can find myself in them. Uh, uh there was a story once where, uh, some, some spiritual teachers, uh, student came to him and said, you know, uh, you know, I lost a loved one, you know, and the, the, uh, you know, so-and-so died or whatever. And his assignment, the teacher gave him was to go to every house and tell him the story and every house he went to, he told him the story. <laughs> Everyone said the same thing. Yeah, me too. Something like that happened to me too. So, um, anyway, I started smoking pot when I was 14 and I remember how paranoid I was the first joint I smoked. I think it was oregano for the six, first six months. Um, and uh, and um, I didn't get high. I really didn't get high. One time I was was sharing with friends and I forgot what I was saying. And I thought I don't usually do that. Maybe I am high. But then we smoked some stronger stuff and I got high. But uh, um, I remember that how paranoid I was that first joint back by the creek behind my parents' house and and uh, my friends were telling me you're going to be the kind of guy that's going to be doing hard drugs within a month or something like that. And I thought, no way, but they were right. So maybe sometimes people can see me better than I can see myself. But, uh, I, um, I, you know, I discovered bonging and, uh, really got into that. Uh, and I, when I reflect back on that, like, you know, like 99% of the time, the bong was filthy, you know, the first hit after it was clean was the only time it was clean, you know, and my experience was, you know, a lot of sticks and seeds, never liked the dealers. I think once I liked one of the dealers and, um, uh, you know, cause they had a cool bong or something, <laughs> you know, they had a bong like with a face on it, a ceramic bong with like a skull on it or something, who knows? But, uh, geez, you know, I tell you, I'm not kidding. You know, 85% of the time, you know, I couldn't find good pot. I was like a pitiful pothead. I mean, really it was like, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I think there was a 10-year stretch where I couldn't find good pot. The summer of 76 was a hellish summer. All I could find was this, you know, dog meat black finger hash that, you know, really didn't cut it. I remember, you know, having it lit, 
before I put the you know jar on it on a on a needle at an angle on the on the table you know on like a pin or whatever. And my mom came in the room and she sees this you know like six inch flame coming off the off the desk and she's like oh I'm like it's okay mom she's gonna close the door you know behind my beads I had the beads you know coming off the uh, uh, off the door you know and uh, uh, my friend was uh, into electronics he was smart. Uh, uh, except that he hung out with me, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he, he, uh, he, um, uh, hooked up these lights to my speakers. So when we would trip, you know, that we'd see the shadows going off the wall and, you know, yeah, it was happening, but, uh, yeah, I just, most of the time the pot wasn't good enough and the buds weren't big enough, too many, too, too, too much shake. Uh, whenever I split a bag, whoever I split it with, it was like their bag always looked better. Um, and I remember, you know, buying ounces or lids, whatever they were, for fifteen dollars, and then the price eventually went up to thirty or thirty-five. At the end, it, I think they were, you know, a hundred fifty if I bought a pound, and you know, I would sell them for two hundred. So I, I, I bought it, I sold it, and I eventually stole it. And I remember uh, one of my great strategies to try to quit smoking pot. Um, I moved to Washington State when I was nineteen, the first time I ever, like, you know, went to go live on my own, you know, without my parents' support after I flunked out of college, basically hid it hid in the hid in my, you know, dorm room and did bongs, you know. And uh so uh I moved to Washington State to live on my own from Chicago after I flunked out of college and what happened, uh I moved out there, I drove fifty two miles an hour the whole way and I was gonna quit smoking after I ran ran out of the pound and a half of reefer I was bringing with me and uh I rolled 100 joints up for the ride and had some hash oil, and I had uh, four boa constrictors in the trunk, like guarding the pot in case the police pulled me over. They would run into those first, small ones. But, um, you know, I look back 52 miles an hour when the speed limit is 55. It's kind of like, you know, uh, kind of like hanging a sign out the window. Hey, cops, will you pull me over? I'm paranoid. If somebody did pull me over. It was uh, some a van that I had passed, and then they passed me, and they put a cardboard sign up on the window do you got any pot and I pulled over and I sold them out of the lousy stuff I'm not complete I'm not a complete idiot anyway so uh yeah eventually uh you know in in uh you know years later uh you know I, I remember smoking in the marines like walking on the parade deck in uniform saluting an officer with one hand and a joint cupped in the other not, not real bright but uh I remember some years later, I had a job, the best-paying job I ever had, at driving a forklift for a trucking company at night, and I had the job for about three years, and I crushed my finger at work. I had smoked before I came to work that night, and my first thought was, oh, my God, I'm not going to be able to, you know, um, hang on to a deadlift. I was had been competing in powerlifting for about 12 years and got a lot further in that sport than I ever thought I would. And uh, so... Um, and then I was off work for four months collecting two-thirds of my pay, which I, you know, I think I felt a little guilty about. So, uh, you know, I basically realized that the pot wasn't keeping me from being lonely. You know, I thought pot and television would keep me from being lonely, but it was, it was the opposite. It was keeping me lonely. And I said a prayer in self-pity uh, while I was off work during that time and, and uh, crying, you know, because the girl done left me. Or Actually, that was the only, I think, the only relationship where it was the other way around, where I actually... I, could, I think I could have, if I made an effort, kept the relationship going for, you know, at least a day or two longer. But, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, 
uh, and then a few weeks later, I after that prayer, I looked in the you know newspaper and started showing up at in-person 12-step meetings. And I did, did those things for a lot of years, and uh, my life started changing. I started feeling, uh, you know, happier for brief moments. I called up my mom and said, I love you, and uh, cried. And and then um, and then I got a call from a dealer and and uh, thought, oh, I could just sell it. I won't, <laughs> I won't smoke it. I thought, well, you know, I got to try the product. Anyway, and then I went on like a, like a two-week, month-long binge and actually shot up coke and heroin for a while. I had some bruises on my powerlifting arms. It was, you know, kind of like, geez. You know, uh, and um, anyway, I crawled back into a meeting, and then I was hurting physically, and uh, the next day I got a sponsor. And that's, so that's when my life really started changing. When I started calling that guy every day, went to meetings every day, and I, what I did was uh, I broke my bong. And uh, I didn't, I didn't deal with these people that I used to use with, and uh, they weren't really friends. They were people that I used with, and uh, you know, and I didn't even have a friend in me, you know. So, so um, I did about 132 meetings in 90 days. I wrote it down every time, and I kind of wish I could go back and talk to that guy and say, "Listen, buddy, you're doing the best you can," because you know, lots of times I'd hear people sharing meetings and I would think, oh, I should be doing more with the steps. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I was working full time midnights, you know, and I, you know, working midnights, I wasn't able to sleep, uh, longer than, um, you know, maybe four hours straight and then get up and, and, uh, you know, eventually get a couple hours before I went back to work, you know, you know, in the evening, get a little more sleep. But, uh, yeah, it was, um, you know, I was doing the best I can. I was, you know, I would look back at that. You're, you know, doing maybe, maybe if I would have talked to that guy, I'd say, well, see if you could maybe write a sentence on a step every, you know, every other day or something, just a sentence or something. But um, to me, um, you know, my sponsor told me he says, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, the solution is in the steps. You know, uh, you know, how long do you think you can? stay alive without, you know, the steps. So uh, he told me, you know, at three months, you know, somewhere in the, before that three-month period, he told me, three or four months, he told me, uh, you know, um, you've made a beginning on all three steps just by, like, going to meetings and staying sober. And uh, and I'm not saying that's a global truth or anything, but that's one way to look at it. And and so, uh, you know, uh, we went, he says, we're going to go to the park and, and go over the first three steps and we got to the park and I just blared out, you know, a little bit of my fifth step that was a secret for many years. And he had some similar behavior. He admitted he used to have. And, uh, and then he gave me permission to work a four step. And of course I went around to a bunch of meetings where people didn't know him and, uh, you know, said, um, you know, my, you know, trying to make my sponsor wrong for rushing me through the steps. Cause I heard other people that weren't, you know, that quick to work, worked at inventory, you know, and some quicker. But finally, I met one guy in, in a wheelchair. He had 18 years of sobriety, and he said, look, you could always do a, a four-step now, and you could do another one later. And that kind of just blew me away. I thought, you know, you had to do the perfect Hall of Fame four-step, and then later, you know, you, you, you did other stuff. You know, I didn't know you could ever do it do it again. Uh, so uh, eventually, I wrote that inventory, and it was like a five, 30 pages, something, five-and-a-half, six-hour, fifth-step, uh, with him in my basement apartment, and I just remember being pissed off afterwards because he started talking about himself, and I was worried about, 
you know, my uh, landlord upstairs, the guy I knew from the gym who probably wouldn't have cared what he heard, but, um, you know, I'm kind of paranoid. So, uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, I was really wanting to hurry up with the steps at that point because I met my sponsor had seven years and there were some people with you know, a guy with 20 years, a guy with 33 years that I was making meetings with. And I wanted to work the steps with those guys. So I want to hurry up and get done with my sponsor and, and move on to those guys. And, so I said, you know, I'm ready for the, you know, the eighth step or something like that, or I'm ready for the sixth step. And he said, listen, you got to live the sixth and seventh step. And I've been reflecting on that lately, and I think that was one of the better things I ever heard. And eventually I did. I was, I really, some changes really happened. Um, but, uh, and, he, and he told me something to do, and I got upset about that. And then I called somebody else, and he, he thought I should do what he said. So I did. I did that. And so sometimes I would actually follow follow directions. I, I, you know, I look back that willingness I had early recovery that that has come and gone. I don't have the willingness. I I, I used to do some pretty kind of you know extreme things, and I feel that's how I kind of found my balance. But eventually, I started working the. You know, I wrote that that uh, that first eight step list, and. Uh, and and the, somehow the willingness came, you know, to make those amends. And I remember making an amend to a doctor that I lied to, and uh, I gave him a fake name. <laughs> Could you imagine that? Me giving a, another. <laughs> but uh, you know, I didn't like doctors. I you know. Uh, so um, anyway, I went to my sponsor said send him a letter, and then I heard this guy David, who's my sponsor now. My first sponsor was Fred, and right after I, I was getting ready to send that letter, after my sponsor told me that, that he said the uh, the the ninth step, direct amends, is, means face to face. And so I went to my sponsor and I said, "Look, you know, uh, I think I should go to this guy in person." And he said, "You're right. I was trying to protect you." So I went to the guy in person, and it was a great amends. You know, the guy was like nice to me, the doctor and everything, and I paid him, and I walked out of there and felt good about it. One of my favorite amends was uh, uh, I made some other amends. I made amends to my mom around that time at about eight months over. And, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I said to my mom that I stole from her purse. You know, I didn't tell her that it was to buy my girlfriend bunny wraps in the second grade and later to buy pot. But uh, I told her some of the harm I did her, and, and, she, and I said, I want to pay you back. And she said, and this was face-to-face, she said, well, that's all right. Just like a lot of people told me that, that's all right when I was going to pay him back face-to-face money. And um, so I went to my sponsor, and he said, you did your part. And then I went to David's sponsor, his sponsor's sponsor, Jimmy, the guy with 33 years. And Jimmy told me I did my part. But I talked to David about it, because David was starting to help me with some of my amends, even though Fred was still my sponsor. And so David told me, he says, if you really want to get that money back to your mom, you can mail it to her. You can put it in her coat pocket. You can put it in her car. You can put it in her purse. And so I sent her a check. And I kept sending her checks until she told me, you know, you don't have to send anymore. And I would put a note in there and call her in between and stuff, get together with her. But uh, I remember being about a year and a half sober, and uh, I was complacent, and um, I was suffering big time. You know, I wasn't wasn't drinking, wasn't using, uh, wasn't, wasn't eating like I used to. But... Um, you know, I was still doing some of the old stuff I was doing, and it was causing me pain. And 
uh, David sent me out to this guy with a working step group, and this guy had over 40 years of sobriety, and uh, I remember calling up this guy. <laughs> and uh, called him up. And, and uh, he said, what's your name? I said, Scott. He said, how long have you been sober? I said, a year and a half. And he says, uh, what have you done with the 12 steps? I said, I made a beginning on all 12, but it seemed so long ago like it's not doing any good now. And he said, uh, have you done a four-step? I said, yeah. I said, one big one and one small one. He says, have you, have you, have you made any amends? I said, uh, yes. He says, do you, do you have, he says, do you have, uh, where's your eight-step list? Do you have an eight-step list? I said, yes. And he says, where is it? And I looked for it. You know, for about thirty seconds, I couldn't find it, and he, I said, "I can't find it." He says, "He says, grab a piece of paper," and he says, "You got one?" I said, "Yeah." He says, "Grab a bigger one," and he says, "Okay, you get, uh, put down your parents." He says, uh, "Do you have any brothers or sisters?" I said, "Yes." He says, "Put them down." He says, "Do you have any employers you stole from?" He said, "Put those down," <laughs> and uh, and he said, "Add to this list as it goes on." He says, "Is there any amends on this list that you can make this weekend?" And I said, "Yes." And I went to my first employer that I sold meat and beer from. And I was so miserable that weekend. And I walked, I walked in and told Denny, Denny, this big, big, mean-looking boss, total alcoholic guy, and you know, he I, he looked sober. You know, he kind of had, a, he was kind of glowing. And I thought maybe he knew what I was doing. And I said, look, I, you know, I stole meat and beer from you, you know, years ago when I worked here, and I want to pay you back. And he said, oh, that's all right. And I said, well, I want to, you know, we went back and forth for a while. Finally, I said, I need to do this for me. And he said, okay, pay the cashier. And I, and I walked out of there, and I had, like, instant gratification. I walked out of there. I felt lighter. I felt taller. I felt good. I never felt that for smoking, you know. And um, that, that guy was powerful. And that, you know, when I went out to his group, the first thing he said to me, he's, I introduced myself, and he, and he, like, before he even let go of my hand, practically, he was, like, introducing me to other guys. And he says, this guy, you know, is new to our group. And he wants to swap fifth steps with people. And, and, he, and so he introduced me to these guys. I got their numbers. And then, and then um, I didn't, I, you know, I didn't want to have to write a new four-step. I said, you know, you know, can I share the same four step over with those guys? He says, Yeah, just add it to, you know, when you, when you hear something there is that, you know, it, you know, applies to you. Add to, add to your four step. So, I shared. He says most people won't tell you you need to do this, but you know, I, I think you should do like three fifth steps. I think he might have said within a week or something. So I did a couple fifth steps there with that group, and um, you know what I've learned, you know, if I listen to a fifth step, I don't need to point out anything to anyone. They just shared some intimate stuff with me. Just listen and maybe say, you know, I've had some similar behavior. But uh, to me, you know, I eventually, you know, started this little meditation practice. And, uh, you know, I started doing that regularly, you know, after about three years of making meetings. And um, um, I relapsed twice, two, two one-night things, you know, after, uh, you know, almost a couple days. first one was, you know, a couple days before three years. Uh, I, I smoked pot and then I... Uh, Called my sponsor the next morning and and um, and went to a meeting and quit quote quit quoting the literature for a few weeks <laughs> and then a few months later I smoked crack for eight hours and um, you know both those t- and did the same thing called my sponsor next morning went to a meeting they were one night experiences and it kind of humbled me for a few weeks only you know <laughs> and uh, but uh, you know um, you know people places and things I you know I, I you know to me staying sober. Is I think that you know 
I can guarantee to stay sober right now at this moment, like just now, not one day at a time, just right now. I can't live one day at a time. I can only live now. And so, so I think the only way I can guarantee sobriety is if I'm never around the stuff, you know, and somebody may show up someday and that's when I can run away and scream, you know, or call my spot, recoil as if from a hot flame. But, uh, you know, I started this meditation practice up and, you know, thought I was a big darn deal. And cause I knew some of people in recovery weren't doing meditation, you know, cause, uh, you know, I would hear it in their shares and, uh, talk to them and stuff. And, uh, I had a technique and then years later I kind of got rid of the technique and just, you know, now I, uh, just kind of sit, sit in a chair and relax. And I don't even need the label meditation. I just sit in a chair and relax and allow everything to be as it is. No technique, no strategy, just kind of like being with thoughts. I'm not trying to get rid of thoughts. You know, that's, that's the uncontrollable without a shadow of a doubt. That's the uncontrollable for me. And, uh, you know, I'm reflecting back with Jimmy, some of the phone calls I made to him. One at about six months sober, I called up Jimmy. I, you know, I heard people sharing in meetings and, you know, I just, I, God, I had this beautiful, sincere desire to help somebody. And I called up Jimmy and I said, Jimmy, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, uh, I really want to help somebody. And he said, listen, are you listening? You could unselfishly not ruin somebody's life by trying to help them. And, uh, and then another time, you know, maybe shortly after that, I, I called him up and I said, uh, Jimmy, I, I, I want to do some volunteer work at the hospital. He says, hey, I think that's the worst thing you could do. And he was right. You know, I was working full time. I was, you know, trying to do some stuff with the steps. I was making a meeting every day. You know, I made meetings every day for many years. I remember after many years of sobriety, I uh, found this meeting place. I made 11 meetings in one day. Yeah, they had seven days a week. They had 11 meetings in a day there. And it was good. Um, but uh, another time I called, I heard somebody sharing a meeting. They said they moved out to the country. It was the best thing for them. Best thing for them. The best thing that ever happened. They got married, moved out to the country. And, you know, I don't know if they planted some plants or something, you know, some vegetables or whatever. But I thought, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that should. I think I'm going to do that. Called Jimmy up, and he said, "He says I don't know about you, but everything I plant, I would plant would die." But Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy was great. He, he I called him up one time, and I yeah, maybe it was around six months over too. And I, I was, <laughs> I was thinking of leaving recovery. I was thinking of leaving these damn twelve step meetings, and and uh, I said, "Jimmy, I'm thinking of leaving recovery." And he said, "I'm all for it if you think it's getting in the way of your spiritual development." And what I realized. Right then, just very clearly, instantly, I realized everything good in my life was either a direct or indirect result of going to going to meetings and, and taking some actions that were, you know, basically kind of the opposite of what my mind told me would make me happy. But um, I remember uh, in 1995, um, I wanted to meet my birth mother. So... Uh, I contacted the adoption agency, and and they found her. And uh, the first night we talked, I told her I was in recovery. She said she was in recovery. She was living in Austin, Texas, and and I felt a lot of love. And uh, the second night I talked to her, the very next night, uh, on the phone, I was telling her about my inventory, you know, the stuff that I, my mind tells me people wouldn't like me if they found out. And I didn't feel judged at all, and she... Uh, I, I can remember getting off the phone, and I just felt so loved. And the guys at work at the trucking company, they could they could 
tell it, you know, I was t- sharing with them about it. And uh, they said, yeah, we can see it. And, uh, and then then I met her, and I remember, uh, you know, I, was, <laughs> I moved to California in 97 and um, um, got some little jobs there that, you know, barely scraping by. And then and I got a job at this place where people healed naturally from cancer. It was kind of lit, the same lifestyle that I was living. And, and and they healed from diabetes naturally. And my birth mother calls me up and she says, she says, uh, she's got cancer. And she asked me, what should I do? And I, and I, and I told her, I says, Start meditating. Change your life. Go to this place. They got one outside Austin, the same place I worked at in California. Go there and you know do 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 their thing or ch- just really change your life. And you know uh, she she says you know a couple of the ladies that had the same kind of cancer as her died following the medical treatment that, that was recommended. And she's she's still alive and kicking. She's 80 years old. She works as a psych- psychotherapist and. Um, uh, she's she's my hero. She's the love of my life. I'm I'm thinking of sending her some boxing gloves, so maybe she can protect me because I know I'm a coward. But uh, yeah, she's pretty amazing, cancer free for you know since I think about 2000 now. And um, and then I was asked to work in another job in the, the same field, and I I had so much fun at that job. I, I it was the first time I had a job where I didn't I didn't look at the clock to take a break. They called me nonstop. I, I just I didn't break. I didn't break. I didn't stop to eat. I just worked. I was so grateful to have that job, and uh, then they made me manager. And then I managed to piss a lot of people off. The, I used to be in the Marines, so uh, they, they, I was, you know, you know, kind of had the, uh, you know, I want to be the drill instructor. I want to make the private suffer kind of thing. I just wanted us to do good, so I didn't. I didn't really want people to take breaks. You know, <laughs> not really very practical. But you know, I saw. So I you know managed to lose that job eventually, but. Uh, and then I just kind of lived out of my car and traveled around and went to meetings and saw spiritual teachers and heard, heard a message, you know, a non-dual message that blew me away. One of my teachers says, yeah, Pamela, she says, can you see that who you are is so innocent? You know, part of recovery for me was, you know, stop making other people wrong, quit blaming, you know, quit playing the role of the victim, which I was expert at before recovery, and, and start blaming myself. Well, then, you know, now I look at it like things are kind of co-created. It's not really right for me just to say, blame all myself. One of the things that's difficult for me, is, you know, is is when people like kind of have a reaction and they have an innocent, automatic, unconscious reaction like I do to something I say, and then then I ha- I feel hurt, you know. And uh, it happened the other day with somebody not from these lines, not in recovery, but uh, you know, it's almost a non-event. No one's messing with me at the moment, but you know, it's not going on anywhere except except inside my head. But it can be painful, you know. And uh, I call it imagined suffering. You know, I, I'm th- I'm tickled to death that I know what suffering is these days. To me, suffering is imagining myself to be different and separate than others. It's uh, wanting things to be different than they are, and it's believing my thoughts to be true. Basically, like kind of those Velcro kind of thoughts that say life would be better if it was at least a little bit different. Well, no, life would be different if it was different. And uh, to me, the exact nature of my wrongs is imagining myself, you know, basically that I'm the doer, the choice maker, I'm the one living my life, and I don't, you know, I can't get my heart to beat. I don't, you know, that, that's an old idea. Here's what sings to me, and here's what sings to me, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the MA literature. 
Our old ideas and ways of life no longer work for us. Okay, what's my old ideas? That I'm, I'm, I'm this body, and I know that for sure. I got pictures to prove it. And I'm, you know, I'm on a rock. I'm being hurled towards death. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, you know, and that my these thoughts that appear are mine. And you know, and if they're not the best thoughts, that that means I'm bad. Oh, that's an old idea. That never worked. So I kind of just, you know, I'm kind of into resting as cluelessness. You know, I went to see a teacher today, and that's what we did. We basically rested as cluelessness. And I, you know, I talked to her at break, you know, right before I left early, and she said, uh, she, she, I, I said to her, yeah, it's been two years, because she asked me about that in the group, you know, uh, you know how long we've been meeting. I said, yeah, it's been two years. And, and she says, yeah, you, you've, you've never missed one. And I said, yeah, that's one of the benefits of not having a life. And she said, yeah, we're available. And that's, that's, you know, that's what, that's what I like about my life. I'm available. Every once in a while, I feel like I can, uh, you know, play a role of trying to be of help, even though I really don't know what's best for me, let alone anyone else. And I think the worst thing I've ever done in recovery is, is, um, is I shared part of my fifth step with my little sister, and she could probably handle it. But when she told, when she told my my other relatives, <laughs> and they they can't they can't really handle it. They, I can hear it when my doctor. They can't really let it go. They can't let my past go, and maybe I can't fully either at times. You know, and I'm not 100% free from my past. It's 2018. Laws are changing out there. I get tempted. I mean, this. You know, I'm not, it's not because it's not like it's 2018 and I'm free. You know, it's like I'm dealing with a whole new animal with these law changes. So, uh, you know, uh, but um, and to me, to me, uh, I think that it's very useful for me to trust life. And if I trust life, I don't need, need to be giving people unsolicited advice. And if they have different experience than me, all that means is that's a different experience. It doesn't mean it's right or wrong. It's just different. Different isn't right. It's not wrong. It's not good. It's not bad. It's not hard. It's just different. And there's space for it all. There's space for all. Like one of my teachers who's a 12-step guy says, you know, we're all going to work these steps differently. The main thing is that we have a sincere heart. And uh, here's here's a quote that my sponsor and I both like. And it's got the word you in it, so I apologize. Feel free, it's a very short quote. Feel free to, if you don't like the word you, you can put your fingers in your ears. Um, uh, I don't have something you don't. You believe something I don't. And there's another quote I like a lot. Uh, Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what a love like that does. It lights up the whole sky. Thanks for putting up with a joker and a clown like me, and uh, <laughs> uh, peace.